and welcome one and all to our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, How to Help Those Who Struggle with Fear and Anxiety. It may be that you have come here because you have someone that you know who struggles with that, and uh, perhaps you don't have a great problem with it, but you know folks who do and you want to know how to help them. But the truth is, all of us have difficulty with this issue of fear and, and anxiety. And so, it's my hope that this class of seven weeks will be of help to all of us, myself included, not only in how to help others, but in how to help ourselves with this topic that Scripture speaks to a number of times, as we'll see in our weeks together. So I want to encourage you to commit to the seven weeks that we will have going through the notebook that you have in front of you, When I Am Afraid. And by the time we finish with that, and if you will do the questions that are part of the, the lessons, they're fairly simple, they're very subjective for you to simply analyze yourself and where you are with this issue. If you'll do that, come and do those things. By the time we finish on the backside of the seven weeks, then you and I all should be helped with this important topic. My name is Ken Brown. I'm the pastor of our church here, Community Baptist. We meet here every week, and three times a year we do a series that we invite the community to, such as this one, and we look forward to uh, what God is going to teach us in our time in these lessons together. Fear and anxiety. It's something that affects all of us, starting with when we are children. So just think about when you were a kid, or if you have children, think about your children as I do. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. And our 15-year-old and 12-year-old had their own fears, and they still have different fears now. But when they were little children, they had fears that had no particular rational explanation for them. And you probably had the same, same thing when you were a kid, if you can remember back that far. There were things under your bed. You were, you were sure of that. We make movies based upon these realities, that kids have those sort of fears. Uh, if you've seen Monsters, Inc., you know, the monsters appear at night in these kids' bedrooms and make them scream, and the screaming of these kids supplies energy for an entire, an entire city. And so it's these monsters' job to scare these kids so that they scream, chap, capture the energy from the screaming, and it keeps this city uh, in, uh, in energy. And that's because children have these fears, and children have all sorts of them, that, importantly, they did not have to, they did not have to learn. And those who publish books for children know this. They know that children have these fears, and they capitalize on them. Children's books, if you've ever noticed, have this scary bent to them very often. I'm going to read you some excerpts from some children's books in, in just a minute. But Stephen King, who writes you know, the scary novels for adults, says, I like to scare people, and people like to be scared. And if you look at what sells for children's books, he's probably right that people like to be, like to be scared. So consider these excerpts from some children's stories, and these are from children's stories from around the world. One starts out this way. No one in the family ever went near the attic. They hoped the eerie sounds up there made by were made by branches scraping against the house. But they took no chances. 
And that was wise. For up in the attic, an evil demoness awaited them. That's your child's story. Or here's another one. Long ago in China, there lived an old man with a heart of stone. He drove away every beggar who came to the door. And then you know how the story is going to go. He's going to become a beggar, and he's going to be in trouble himself. Or here's another. Once upon a time, there was a widow who had a daughter of her own and a stepdaughter. Whenever her own daughter did or said anything, the woman would pat her on the head and say, Clever girl. But no matter how hard the stepdaughter tried, she was always being called foolish or lazy by the woman who often scolded her and sometimes beat her. Now these are children's books. So in the children's mind, what is going on? Am I, am I, the, am I like the stepdaughter? Am I going to uh, be in that situation uh, someday? And so it's, it's scary. Or in one children's book, books, one of the characters simply says, I'm not afraid of anything. And of course, we all know that's not true because all of us are afraid of some things. But why does this character in the story need to proclaim, I'm not afraid of anything? It's because fear and anxiety are such a common occurrence for all of us. Now, why is that? I want to go from children, then to teens, and then to us who are adults. But why does it start out that way with children? Is it that they get these stories and it scares them? Or do the stories sell because they're already scared? Why is it a, an almost universal phenomenon with children that they are fascinated by what is, what is scary? And one possibility is that children are scared before they ever encounter their first scary story. In which case, the function of the story is to validate pre-existing fears that the children already have. So in other words, children already feel as if there are dangers lurking in every dark room. And these fears came with the package of just being a human. So the scary stories, they don't, don't create the fear, they offer explanations for the fear. This is why you're afraid, because there's reason to be afraid. There's stuff out. Now, if you look on page 5 of your notebook, you notice on page 5, in that second paragraph, it simply says, to be human is to be afraid. To be human is to be afraid. And it starts in childhood. Children have these fears, and they come with the package of being, of being a human, starting in childhood. Now you move forward to the teen years. And when children become teens, they take their scary stories with them, but those stories are no longer cute. Gone from the stories now are the fairies and the kind strangers who have unusual powers to, to help you. Now it's just in-your-face scary. It's Freddy Krueger. It's goosebumps, it's Chucky, it's chainsaws. And teens like to, teens like to watch these things. People, says Stephen King, like to be scared. And these stories, all of them say, it isn't safe out there. Something or someone is watching what I am doing. And so it goes from children to adults, but then of course those adults grow up. And the adult nudges 
into, into adult life, but takes with them, with them those childish fears and those teenage fears as, as well. We might assume that the adult would unload that baggage, but in fact, that's not what happens. Adults might not go next door for candy for Halloween in just a few weeks. But did you know more dress up for Halloween and Mardi Gras than ever before? Right now? Primetime television programs feature vampires and mediums and ghosts and other visitors from the afterlife. And so even in adulthood, we appear to be fascinated with this idea of, of fear and what's out there and what might happen. And you add to that the reality of living in a dangerous world, just watching the news. And you hear words like jihad. And that's scary to most of us. It's scary to me. What is it that some of these people have in mind for the rest of us? I want to get on an airplane. Who else is getting on with me? And who got by the detector? I mean, it was in Detroit, after all, that we had the Christmas Day guy, right? And so those kinds of thoughts now more based in rationality because we have come to learn that indeed we do live in a dangerous world come to us in adulthood. They start in our childhood years. It appears that as children we already know that there's something dangerous out there and the stories simply reinforce that and give some explanation to it. And then in the teen years it simply becomes more stark. And then in the adult years it becomes all the more real to us all of us sitting here. And so our fears increase, it would appear, throughout our lives. And the fears become sophisticated. I'm going to talk about some of the labels that we use for those fears for people like us in just a moment. But you all know the children's author, Hans Christian Andersen. You may not have known this, that he was always afraid that he would be buried alive. And that he would go to sleep with a note on the table next to his bed telling people, I'm not dead, I'm only sleeping. So that nobody would mistake him being dead and bury him alive. And so, no wonder he wrote stories like Hansel and Gretel and so on. There was a time when adults were just divided into a couple of neat categories. You were either neurotic or you were psychotic. Psychotic meant this. You were out of touch with reality and you were afraid. Psychotic. Out of touch with reality, you're afraid. Neurotic, you're in touch with reality and you're still afraid. But notice the common denominator in both of them. We're afraid. And there are all kinds now, instead of just these two broad categories, there are all kinds of psychiatric disorders which can fit any of us, one or more. Let me read through some of these. Generalized anxiety disorder. Agoraphobia. Social phobia. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Sexual aversion disorder. Sleep terror disorder. Avoidant personality. Persecutory delusions. Panic disorder. Paranoid schizophrenia. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Nightmare disorder. Paranoid personality. Separation anxiety disorder. And on the list goes. And probably one or more of those contains, contains symptoms that all of us here have experienced at one time or another. Now, what kind of treatments, then, are there for this? 
trying to make the case that this is a virtually universal phenomenon. It starts in childhood. You don't have to teach these fears to kids. They already have them. It gets more intense in the teen years and doesn't leave us when we become adults. Quite the contrary, they increase. And so what kinds of treatments are there for these fears and anxieties? Well, medications. And medications can dull the symptoms. Psychological treatments address the, the thoughts. But think about this. If you're afraid to fly because you keep thinking the plane's going to crash, you can't just replace that thought with another. You can try that, but it's not going to work over the long haul. Now, that tends to be what I do. I get on a roller coaster, and I'm thinking, that thing is really high. And I'm, I'm afraid of it, but I want to go on it. And I say to myself, I've seen it go about 20 times now, and nobody has fallen off. And I didn't read in the paper yesterday that anybody fell off. I'm sure I would have heard about that. What are the chances? Same thing for the airplane ride. Airplane ride, people are flying all over the place. It's the safest form of travel. It's safer than riding in your car. All of that is true. And I use that to convince myself. And then it finally hits me. That's all true, but there have been roller coasters that have gone off the track. And every now and then a plane does crash. What if I'm that roller coaster and I'm that plane? So you can do the replace it, but nonetheless, I've still got this fear going on with, within me. And, and so do you. So back on page five, to be human is to be afraid. We're small and the world is big. And though we make plans, we follow through on decisions, we feel like we have some say-so, the truth is we can't control even the most trivial events. Amass enough money to keep the creditors at bay, but then death comes not. Lock the door to secure everything, and then rust and decay, steal your fortune from within. And neither is there any consolation in being poor. It's true, the less you have, the less there is to lose. And if you're poor, you may be less vulnerable to thievery, but you may still worry about being out on the street, finding your next meal. Having material possessions can make you feel as though a buffer is between you and whatever is out there that is creepy and may happen to you. You say, well, I'm so glad I came to this series. I feel so much better. But please stay with it. And the first step in each of us dealing with these fears and anxieties that we all have is for us to acknowledge what they are. And that's what the bottom of page 5 is about. The first thing to do is locate the fears and locate as many of them as we can. Notice the bottom of page 5. The attractiveness of God's Word to you depends on doing that. If you can't see your fears and your worries, then God's words of comfort won't go deep. Now, do you understand what's being said there? The more I understand the reality of my struggle, your struggle with fear and anxiety, the more God's comforting words, and he has just all sorts of them that we're going to see together, will mean to us. But if we haven't taken a true, authentic, clear look at the fears that we have, well, then those words will seem hollow. And so it's very important for us to take time to identify what the fears are that each of us have. And so that's what's on page 6 and, and following. In your workbook, pages 6 and 7 and 8 have some questions for you to answer. 
Now, I mentioned at the beginning, if you'll attend and you'll go through these questions during the week, then by the time we're finished with our seven weeks together, I'm convinced that you will be helped with this issue of fear and anxiety. So here's the first assignment for each of us. On pages six and seven, you see the question, what fears and worries can you locate immediately? What fears do you have regarding those people that you love? On page seven, fears and worries arise when we could lose something important to us, something we love. What are you afraid that you might lose? What fears do you have about your own death and possible, possible physical disability? Now, in order to help you get going with, with that, there's a list on page eight of some of those, some of those possible fears. Fear of the dark, fear of airplanes, fear of seeing blood, and, and on it goes. But allow me to give you, give you some more even in addition to that, just to get the juices flowing so that you can think about what fears and anxieties you have. Locating those will help God's promises be all the more real and clear and precious to you. And so you should start as you think about this by rounding up the usual suspects for fear and anxiety. Things like your safety and the safety of people that you, you love. We all think about that, don't we? We all have some anxiety about that. Fears about how you'll die. Will it be a debilitating disease? Will it be cancer? Will it be Alzheimer's disease? Will I be alone? Will I be in poverty? Fears about what happens after death. Being forgotten being maligned after I'm gone. What are they going to say? How will I be judged? Fears about living a meaningless life. Extensive resumes seem more and more hollow when we consider the end of life. What have I really accomplished? Fears about being unloved or alone, being in love and the high probability of being hurt. Fear about what we might lose. I'm getting older. If I'm a lady, I'm going to lose my figure. I'm going to lose my boyfriend, my girlfriend, I'm going to lose my hair, lose my youth, lose my mind, lose my money, my job, my spouse, my health, my hobbies, my purpose, maybe even my faith. That's just, that's just to get us, get us started. Now hear this, anytime you love or you want something deeply, you should notice that fear and anxieties come along with it because you may or may not get those things. So I want something deeply, but I have anxiety because I may or may not be able to achieve getting that person or that thing. And anytime you can't control the fate of those things you want or you love, you'll notice that fears and anxieties come because you might lose them. I can't control them. And so what do we do with that? We do things like insurance policies. That only lessens the risk for us. They can't ensure that our loved ones will outlive us or that we'll be kept from the ravages of age. Control, now hear this, control and certainty are myths for us. We really don't control and we really cannot be certain of what's going to happen tomorrow. And there are all sorts of phobias as you try to think about them. What are the things that I'm concerned about? The things that I really want, that I can't control, that cause me this fear and anxiety. Let me give you just a, a possible list. They're very common 
phobias that many, many people have. Some that are not so common, like, there's actually one, I don't know if I can pronounce this, arachibutyrophobia. Here's what it is. It's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. There's a label for that. You guys remember? You guys remember the Peanuts cartoons with Charlie Brown and you know Lucy was always pulling the uh, football away from from Charlie. But remember, she always had the you know the psychiatrist is in. She had the can out there for a nickel for a session. And there's this this one scene. It's actually the Charlie Brown Christmas one, where you know Charlie's depressed about Christmas and he goes to her and he says well, she says well you might have and then she ticks through a whole list of phobias that he might have. Anybody remember that? So as Christmas approaches, watch that again. And she goes through this whole list, and then she makes this profound statement. You just tell us how you're feeling, and we can get a label for it. Now that was done in the 60s, long before we had the long list of labels that we have have now. Even labels for things like peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. But here are the more common fears stated in a more common way. Fear of heights. Fear of suffocation, fear of mice, snakes, fear of fat. I don't have that fear, obviously, or at least I've overcome it. Fear of the dark, fear of bridges, needles, insects. I know about the insects one because there are four people in my family. There's one male. I live in a house with three females. If an insect makes an appearance, there is screaming. There's a call for me to come. And I'm the hunter. I hunt down the insect. And I love it, really, because I'm a huge hero when I'm able to step on a spider. Fear of baldness, fear of germs, drowning, dentists, crowds. These are kind of common fears that, that people have. Fear of clowns. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I guarantee you in a, in a group this size, there are people who are afraid of clowns when you were a kid, and you're still a little squeamish about them now. There's actually, a long, there's actually a long phobia term for that. And so real is this, that this actually happened in Sarasota, Florida a few years ago. The city fathers decided that they were going to decorate the city by putting 70 lifelike clowns in the downtown area. And they got emails and they had, they had town hall meetings where people protested having these clowns lurking in the downtown area because there are so many people afraid of, afraid of clowns. Now, I say all of that, you know, they're, they're humorous for all of us in a way, but to show the reality and the extent of the fears and the, the phobias that, that we have. And so there are fears that are expressed in the dreams that many of us have, in the stresses that we feel about day-to-day -day, day -day life, when we are busy and we are driven, 
and those around us are busy and driven and we're all trying to make it to the top, our fears are accentuated because we fear and have anxiety about the fact that we may not be able to measure up and we may not be able to make it. Depression results from this busyness and this drivenness. You know, on the surface, being driven and depression have little in common. One is active, being driven, the other is passive, depressed. But both can be ways of responding to fear. Listen carefully to depression and you often hear fear and anxiety. Things like, I'm not strong enough to handle the despair any longer. I'm afraid all the time. I'm losing my ability to hide my true self. I'm afraid I'll be exposed. Underneath the emotional pain is, is terror. And so there's a relationship to the things that we have to engage in day to day and the fears and anxieties that, that we have. Here's, here's another offshoot now of the fears and anxieties. There's depression, but there's also, there's also anger. Many of us are familiar with depression. We're all familiar with anger as well. And anger says, you're wrong and I am and I'm right. But if you look, listen closely to what anger is saying, it can, say, it can say more than that. It's saying that I wanted something from you and I didn't get it. You were supposed to supply something that I need and you didn't supply it. Therefore, I am angry about it. And I have fears and anxieties that you may not supply it in the future as well. And so fear and anxiety say this, you want something you might not get it. You want power, you want love, you want the TV remote, you want perfect children, but you might not get them. You want financial security, you want help for yourself and for those you love, you want safe passage to work, and you know you can't presume any of it. So anger is an offshoot of fear and anxiety because fear and anger can be the same words, get this, the same words spoken with a different attitude. When I'm lashing out in anger, it's often because I'm fearful about something. Something I won't have, something that I want to have, but it's spoken with an attitude toward the person that may keep me from getting it or who I think I can't count on to supply it. These fears cause other kinds of actions or reactions from us. Depression, anger. Here's another one. Overprotectiveness. Mom, have you gone through a mental list of all the things that could happen to your children? You're the one who reads the milk cart with the face on it that says that could be, that could be my child. Now, the truth of the matter is, we're scared to death because we've got the milk cartons of these days. Back when I was a kid, there weren't faces of other kids on milk cartons. And so we weren't that scared about it. Now we're scared because we see faces on milk cartons. we got Amber Alerts and all of that. And we have the America's Most Wanted, you know, telling us about these people that are creeping around out there. But there's a book that I encourage you moms to get if you really have a problem with this overprotectiveness thing. The book is called Free Range Kids. Free Range Kids. And in the book, the author has uh, done some study that says that you could leave your child on a street corner for an average of three years and they would not be taken. 
The author of the book actually put her nine-year-old on a subway in New York by herself to go from one city to the other. She met her at the other end. Now, as a mother, perhaps as a father, you're sitting there saying that's crazy, and it may be. But it was to make the point, and the child arrived, arrived safely. But we have these outsized fears about our children, which in turn cause us into particular kinds of actions, like overprotection. Superstitions are the result, and on it goes. Now, we look at page 9, then. Fear and anxiety, middle of page 9, make a prediction. One of their messages is clear. Fear and anxiety both live in the future. They say there's a future threat to something I love. Someone I love, something I love. And we fancy ourselves as prophets, and we keep trusting in our predictions, even though those predictions don't come to pass. I mean, it is the case, isn't it, that the stuff we fear doesn't happen. Think about all the stuff you fear. Or it's going to work out a particular way and then circumstances intervene such that it works out a totally different way than you thought it was going to. Right? We had our parade yesterday. Annual parade that we go through New Boston. We hand out invitations to come to a series like this. Perhaps some of you received one and thus you're here. We're glad. But it looked like it was going to rain. But some of us soldiered on. Thank you for all of you who came. Didn't rain. Uh, our tractor that pulls our uh, our wagon, hay wagon, ran out of gas. That's true. Trying to go and fetch gas when the roads are closed for the parade is a little difficult. But some of our folks went and did that. Got the gas can, put the gas in. Everything went. Everything went wonderfully. Now, I admit to you that during the gas can episode and looking up at the clouds and all of that, I had some anxiety. We finished this whole thing, and I say, what was I, what was I worried about? Everything worked out. Everything worked out fine. And that is almost always the case with us, isn't it? The things we worry about, we're making predictions about what is going to happen, and we think we are prophets, but we're really lousy prophets. Because the things we prophesy and predict don't come true. So what prediction, page 9, is your fear making? And again, this week, I encourage you to think about that. This list of fears that you've gone through and put on the previous pages, pages 6 through six through 8. Now on page 9, think about what predictions am I making with these fears? What am I thinking is going to, to happen? The bottom of page 9, fear and worry say something about our relationship with God. Now let's go one more step. When we listen to fear and worry, we can usually notice that we're predicting the worst. And we often detect the connection with things or people that we love. But it's more difficult to hear what our fears are saying about our relationship with God. So listen even more carefully because fears and worries have everything to do with God. You can see how God's connected to everything when a little child keeps asking the why questions. Start anywhere you want. Why do I have a nose? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat peas? Why is the sky blue? Before the fifth why, your answer is probably because God made it that way. 
And the truth of the matter is, all of life is connected to God, and our fears and our worries are no different. Now please notice this next paragraph. We are God's offspring, who either run from Him or run to Him. There are only two possibilities, even when we're afraid. When we're on the fence, trusting God a little, trusting ourselves a little, we can feel like we're going neither away from Him or toward Him. But a closer look at our faith reveals that in our vacillating, we've already made our decision. We've decided to turn from Him and put our trust in ourselves or something else. And so you begin to see, friends, why we're having a course like this at a church. Fear and anxiety are very real, they're very pervasive, but they also involve God. They, like all things, are connected to God, and they say something about how we view and whether we trust God. And so this week, we encourage you to answer the question in the middle of page 10. What do you think you might be saying about God when you're afraid, when you're anxious? When I was anxious yesterday, what was I saying? You know, God doesn't know what's happening here. Now, God clearly does not know that this tractor needs gas. He certainly doesn't know that rain is bad for a parade. Otherwise, we would have blue sky. And, of course, all of that's foolish, and I know better. But in the moment, the heat of the moment, that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about God. What are you thinking about God? The bottom of page 10, the task at hand is to practice turning to the Lord when we're afraid. So that it becomes so natural and instinctive to do that. The psalmists were experts at that. Let's see some of these together. Page 11, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Now does that sound impossible? Middle of page 11. Confidence even when the enemy is already in the house? At this point, it's enough to know that fear is about this. It's about trust, it's about love, and it's about predicting the future. And the most important task for us is to learn the knack of turning quickly to the Lord. You see King David in Psalm 56. And how quickly he's able to move from fear to trust, to faith. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Not if I ever become afraid. <laughs> when? I am. There are times when I am. This is David, warrior king. This is David who took on Goliath and is now older. And he still says, when I am afraid. And when I am afraid, I will do this. I will trust in you. I will trust in God whose word I praise. In God I trust I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They're plotting to harm me. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? 
And then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I'll know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, does this discourage you or does it give you hope? If it discourages you, you may be thinking that David and the other psalmists are, as it says here on page 12, spiritual supermen. But remember this, they're human beings just like you. Except you have, now get this, you have more resources than even they did. You have more of God's Word and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament has baptized all believers, all who have come to Jesus Christ. Something that did not happen to all believers in the Old Testament. He might be a few years ahead of you, but this psalm can be your own. Now at the bottom of page 12, there's a fact listed there that startled me when I when I found out about it. I didn't know it. I'm guessing many of you did not know it. Bottom of page 12, ask the question, what is the most frequent command in Scripture? And it turns out the most frequently issued command in all of the Bible is fear not. Do, do not be afraid. What a marvelous thing. That Almighty God with all of the commands in Scripture. Love, it's, it's, it's more frequent than love the Lord your God. You know, more frequent than give money to the church. More frequent than show up at church. More frequent than read your Bible. More frequent is fear not. Do not be afraid. That gives you a clue to a God who cares enough about you to know about your struggle and to give you these commands, but loving commands. And there are two ways to hear the command, bottom of page 12. One is, God is saying, stop doing that. Don't be afraid. In this case, fear and worry would be just plain wrong. You would violate God's direct command. When afraid or anxious, you confess that to be sin, and then confess it again and again. But there's another way to look at it, top of page 13. Have you ever heard a parent say to a child, be careful? Now, technically, that's a command. Yet no child takes it that way. The parent's not saying, be careful or you're in trouble. The parent is saying, I love you. And my desire is that you be safe. And here's what Jesus is saying. Notice Luke 12, 32. What a precious verse. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. When God says, fear not. When He says, do not be afraid. He's saying you don't need to fear. You don't need to be afraid. And there are reasons that you don't need to fear and reasons that you don't need to be afraid. And so, yes, it's a command, but it's a command that is a reminder and a comfort to us that the God who made us knows us completely. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows our insecurities. He knows we live in a world much larger than ourselves. And this good God who knows us thoroughly says, you do not need to be afraid. You do not need to fear. I encourage you to jot down Isaiah 41 and verse 10. And this week I encourage you to take a look at that one verse, Isaiah 41 10. When I go to the hospital to visit someone, is that person in the hospital bed anxious, fearful? This week when I had a chance to meet with Brother John Whitecloth, 
who's gotten word that he has a matter of months to live because of cancer. Is he prone to anxiety and fear? Sure. Isaiah 41 to you. 10. It's one of those verses in the Bible where the Lord says, Do not fear. Do, do not be dismayed. For I am with you, and I am your God. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, says Almighty God. So it's a command, but it's a command to remind and to comfort. And so at the bottom of page 13, in our remaining moments, Perhaps it's more than you recognized. Perhaps you, you picked up our mailer, you came to this class, you've now got this workbook, you're hoping to find a strategy that will get rid of nagging worries, but then you have this preacher tell you about God. And you think to yourself, well, that's a bait and switch. I thought you were supposed to fix my fears and my worries. You get lured in by promises of more rest in your life, but what you get is the king, the kingdom, and promises that extend beyond death. That seems like a pretty good deal to me. And I hope you see it that way. Top of page 14. I hope that sounds good to you. And you know you're on the right path when that sounds good to you. That instead of a five-step program or a 12-step program to cope with your worries and your fears, that we're going to go through a course to help you to understand what those fears and anxieties say about you, what they say you are thinking about God, and then what God tells you that He can supply such that you do not need to worry or to be, to be anxious. So what better way to end page 14 than to pray? We're going to commit then our time to the Lord over these remaining six weeks together. I encourage you to answer the questions that are in that first session. And then we'll pursue the God of Suspense, which is session two, next week. And we'll learn from his dealings with his people in the first part of your Bible how he can deal with us in our fear and anxiety. Let's go to the Lord, okay? Our Father, we thank you that we could have this time together to consider the fears and anxieties that every one of us have. Because we know, even as children, then into our teen years and now as adults, we know this world is bigger and, than we and beyond our control. We know that there are things that can happen to us that we simply cannot prevent. And the list is endless for the kinds of things that could happen. And we have placed value on people and on things that we worry we might lose because we can't control that. And so that in turn causes anger and it causes depression and all sorts of other reactions from us. It is a huge problem rooted ultimately in how we view you and how we view your world. So we thank you that we could consider this important topic and that these dear brothers and sisters, these dear folks have come to learn from you, to learn from your word. I pray that you'll help us this week as we try to answer the questions honestly and thoroughly so that we can glean the most out of the time that we have together. I ask you to bring us back safely next week and in the weeks to come so that when we end this journey together, looking into your word, we'll have a better understanding of what it is we fear and why we make the faulty predictions that we do and how that reflects upon our, our view of you. May you change us. May you change our view of you 
and thus make us behave more like you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.